All right, we're live. Yeah, I got back uh, a few months ago. Um, Crazy. Yeah. So you guys um, didn't play? Or you... No, season was good. Season's still going. I uh, I blew my other Achilles. Oh, shit. Now I'm man. just back for rehab. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Sorry. Can't catch a break. Yeah, shit happens. Yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah. What about you? Where are you at? You're in Toronto right now. Yeah, I was... Um... Yeah, playing in Greece. Um, we played two exhibition games, and then the um, the whole country went into lockdown. Mm-hmm. So me and my girlfriend just pieced out. We we thought I was going to be back in like January second or third or something and play, and then still in lockdown. And I think that the season is officially cancelled. But every time I try to translate stuff from Greek to English, like I'm never sure if it's like the actual translation yeah yeah kendra a girl that i a girl that went to tear you she got a contract in greece went there for i think she was there for two weeks or a month and then flew back because they said same thing the season might start up in january so she flew back because it was mid-november and then was intending to fly back but yeah it's just the lockdowns continued and now they've canceled the season yeah man that kind of makes me feel better at the same time. Like who cares? I was pretty grateful just to see Greece and stuff. Yeah. But um, I was a little disappointed. And my, my coach was overly optimistic, but at the same time, it doesn't really help me because I'm trying to plan my life. And like, I love volleyball. And I told him I'll come back if we're playing, but he was kind of getting me trying to prep me for next year, which it was never the plan to play there more than one season. Right, yeah. So, yeah, we're that's where we're at now, and we're actually planning to um, move back, move to New Zealand for for a little bit. Cool. COVID free for a bit. Yeah. What's so that is that the major call to New Zealand is COVID free? Oh, uh, dude, I, I miss my family. I miss New Zealand. Like, I got family in Australia. My little sister just had a baby, so um, hopefully by then New Zealand and Australia will have somewhat of a travel bubble. And, mm-hmm. I can go and, and help out and see the baby, but um, no, I, I just miss New Zealand, man. Any time, well, for a bit, any time New Zealand was in the news, it was like a major, majorly negative event. Like there was the there was the mosque shooting, and then there was the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, but lately, any time New Zealand's in the media, it's look at how well like look at this huge festival that New Zealand's having, and yeah. Um, I haven't been back in in five years, so it's about time. Wow, so you haven't been back since you started going to state and playing volleyball? Yeah, my first year at state, um, I went back to Australia. I lived in Australia before I moved to Canada, mm-hmm. and I just went back for Canadian summer, but to Australian winter. Right. And um, just to save some money, it was the biggest mistake. It just sucked being back and just working and being in three winters in a row yeah so and it's just such a long flight man it is that's why a lot of people vice versa like you fly to canada from here from new zealand or australia and you just stay yeah and a lot of canadians will just stay in new zealand Mm because it's just a bitch to fly back yeah yeah yeah, man. Ever since I was a, a young lad watching Lord of the Rings on my sick days, I've just always wanted to go to New Zealand. I was uh, 
before COVID, I wasn't sure if I was going to go play volleyball. And that was my plan was to pick up a working visa for New Zealand and go over there and live there for a year. Yeah, it's impossible to get it now. But um, yeah. oh yeah, nothing. I think you'd love it. Visa. I think you'd yeah. love it, man. But when you're there, obviously, anyone, any, everyone wants to get out of their hometown mm-hmm. and see the world. And I don't know if it's kind of like a grass is always greener on the other side, but I, I miss all the the pros of being in New Zealand, like the people, the culture, mm-hmm. even um, even just the politics. Like, like this um, this whole pandemic thing. Uh, obviously, New Zealand handled it really well, um, and I think probably that's the biggest effect would probably be how the government responded. I know obviously it's a little easier being a smaller country, but um, people that generally um, trust the government mm-hmm. compared to what I've seen, obviously in the States, something else, but even in Canada, the trust that the powers that be um, have your interests is, uh, is a little different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, would you categorize New Zealand as a more collectivist culture? Because I found a similar thing in Denmark was they were a lot more collectivist than we are as individualistic countries. And in, in that way, they first thing that masks were mandatory inside, everyone switched like that. It was just so fast, no complaints, wasn't a big contention point. It was just, okay, we have to wear masks. Yeah, I, I do think, uh, I think obviously america is probably like the quintessential quintessential individualist country Mm -hmm. um uh and i i think it all has to do with history and and the setup of of the government like even um i think the way new zealand's government set up and um to be fair i haven't lived in new zealand in uh eight years now maybe nine Mm -hmm. nine Yeah, and I was never in the tax or government stuff when I was there. Um, but I, I think Americans would classify New Zealand as like a socialist country, especially stuff that I'm that I'm seeing um, in the media, like base things that we don't even argue on. Um, I see being argued in in the states, like, um, sometimes violently, like healthcare and. Um, mm-hmm and funding for schools and all that good stuff. Um, even, even topics like, like abortion and um, guns and stuff. It's, it's just not even like we just passed that. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's even the right way to think of it. Yeah. 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 The, uh, I know that abor- abortion is like a big area of contention and, Poland just made it illegal to get an abortion. Um, yeah. yeah, I think Insane. outside of outside of rape, outside yeah. of conception by rape, I believe it's illegal in Poland now. Um, and I was I was reading this book called Robert Sapolsky called Behave, and he talks about the how how a micro, I, I guess a macro decision can have a macro impact as well. And one of the one of the the examples that he cites is, I want to say it was it was in the the Belarusian area of Europe, more eastern, eastern like central eastern. I, I'm 
maybe Romanian. I'm not 100% sure. I'll, I'll look it up after this. But they made it illegal, and this was in the 18th or, uh, or 19th or 20th century, and they made it illegal to get an abortion before your fifth child. So after your fifth child, you could get an abortion. And the result of that was that they had to industrialize and basically make warehouses for orphans because so many people would just drop their kids off. And as a result, all of these kids grew up with these deficits because they weren't held as children. And that sparked a American psychologist named, no, not Maslow, uh, Harlow. And he, he came up with all of these experiments where they would put two, two pseudo mothers for a chimp or a monkey. And one of them would be nice and warm with a linen cloth. And the other would be just chicken wire mesh with, food. Because, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, the main idea was that from this uh, Skinner behavioralist perspective was that all a baby wants is nourishment and it wants the positive reinforcement of the food because that's going to that's going to keep it alive. And they found actually the opposite was the case is that the children would go for the terry cloth mother over the chicken wire mother because it provided warmth. And I mean, the, the experiments this guy did were super duper insane and sad to read like these monkeys would be scarred for their entire lives and the only thing that could fix them was actually younger monkeys that hadn't hit puberty but it was it was interesting because of how much how detrimental that small decision was not a small decision but that that governmental decision of limiting access to abortion resulted in this huge increase in orphans and they had mental issues going forward their brains didn't develop properly they weren't socialized properly so many children just die in the cradle if they're not touched and so it's interesting to see how we've now gone forward with this information and people still make i believe them to be irrational largely in poland they're super duper religious so i understand i understand it from that perspective but it, it to me seems like such an irrational decision because of the impacts that it's shown in the past. Mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah, I agree. It's insane to me that that's still, that, that it's still a, a contentious area because obviously it's not, it's not something you'd want is abortion being the first, the first line of defense. Yeah, obviously contraception and IUDs have made a a huge up and coming and that's really amazing and and we should keep on going forward with that. But it seems like the best answer that we have right now to that question of how can we maintain society? And I mean, I even hear this with uh, like with the 5G Bill Gates thing and how Bill Gates is trying to cull the population. His his main idea initially, you can you can go back and watch his interviews and he he his original plan was how do we how do we maintain how how do we make quality of life better for everyone and what he found was that without contraception and without access to abortion and these things people would end up having multiple kids and that it was the same thing with vaccines if we didn't have vaccines then a few children would die throughout the course of a mother's life and so people would have 11 kids, 10 kids, because only a few of them would survive. So his whole philosophy was limit the amount of children that, that were 
that we, that we need to have to start a family and to cultivate a family unit into that the nuclear family basically so that each kid can have access to all of the resources that they need to develop properly yeah I, you you touched on a few things that sparked a lot of what i've been reading and thinking about um in terms of in terms of racism um from a and there's actually one of the reasons that probably the biggest reason i want to talk to you because i just need i'm like am i going crazy man <laughs> like do i have all these um conspiracy theories like do, have i figured it out um but i i um keep reading into the history and and to be fair i'm i've just had a magnifying glass on um north america these past few months this past year actually you know the um the BLM movement has really struck like some hyper awareness in me that uh, around anti-black racism, particularly. Um, and what well, what you we're talking about with the history of of abortion and stuff is that like it's a, it was a structural problem. It was it was government policy that that was put into society if this is making sense and that in turn has changed the minds of people to think that abortion is bad mm -hmm. um so maybe let me let me even just rewind all back to the to the creation of race like it, it was this it's a completely socially constructed term and it was actually kind of an economically constructed term um now i don't know um there was a scientist who coined the term race. And I think there were at the time, but depending on which scientists you talk to, there was like this hierarchy of, of races. And there was like, there was white, um, there, it was like white, Asian, black, and maybe, oh, and, and when they um, traveled to, to America, they, um, they, had the like the indigenous people that had their own class for them, right? And it was this hierarchy, and but it all stems from the slave trade. Like the the, the word slave actually is rooted in um, in slav, the slav people, because they were um, they were the slaves in Europe, and then they opened up trade with Africa, and so when ethical questions arose around slavery these um the term race like the term races the term of race was coined to say look look there's this there's this hierarchy of people these these black people are lesser than basically it's okay to they're, they're savage people mm -hmm. there there were some scientists who claimed that um that because of the hot climate, um, they uh, developed um, savage culture and this dark skin, and that that Europeans were where all um, humankind began. That that was the kind of assimilationist theory, um, which is pretty funny, right? Because we now know we all started in Africa. Yeah. It's kind of, um, but. 
in in any in any racist policy that you look at throughout history it's always rooted in self-interest so this slave trade that was created was very lucrative they made a lot of money um trading slaves so they needed a reason to keep doing it people were questioning it so that's how this was this was started and i actually think that the original definition for um racism or racist racism was the belief that there are there are races and that each race is um uh, owed certain privileges in society economic privileges and so on so so um so if you if you carry on through that you know there were if you if you move to ab, um the ab, abolitionist movement in the states with uh what's uh what's the bro's name abraham lincoln mm-hmm. right uh did he want to free did he want emancipation because of the good of black people and the good of mankind uh no he wanted to win the it was politically um okay it made sense politically for him to push that because that's where the north was headed um and, and cut me off at any point if if you um have any objections or anything but lincoln himself said uh i'm paraphrasing obviously that like the slaves should be free but don't get me wrong they don't deserve the same rights as white people they shouldn't be able to vote or like, he he was um quite progressive for his time but progressive then was yeah i i want these people freed but i don't think they're equal mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know what i mean yeah um and so again like just self interest like he wanted to um to win the war it just made sense for him to to be on that side whether or not he had those views um i guess the the point i'm trying to make is like we have this idea right now that um hate and ignorance is the root cause of of racism me saying me calling someone um a racial slur but in actual fact if you look throughout history this has been caused by um discrimination out of self-interest for for uh, a small group of people um in in north america it's um obviously been very rich straight white men um who are usually protestant um religious and that in turn they have created these policies that have um in turn created this ignorance and hate i mean it's it's not the these the views of the people um it's kind of a top down um process mm-hmm. so i don't know if that's making yeah making so i know sense. that i know it it was a it was a tough moral area i think for lincoln in in that obviously people shouldn't be slaves that should never be a thing i think that there are 
three general areas where people should have autonomy and that's in controlling them that actually no just generally that you should have autonomy people should have autonomy and lincoln was at an area where he was making a decision between slavery and the u.s economy because as you said the entire united states economy and to a smaller extent the areas outside of the United States because obviously the slave trade extended into Canada and south into Southern America. And he had to make a decision between an economy and a people. And he actually tilted back and forth quite a bit in the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. He, Frederick talks about it a few times where he sat in on meetings and Lincoln gets incredibly frustrated a few times because he keeps going back and forth. I assume it, it um, it was the people around him as well that were that were pushing him to that. But he wasn't this absolute beacon for hope that he's made out to be now. There were even there were even a lot of um, a lot of initiatives to move people and to reassimilate people into the Congo and to different yeah. parts of South America. Yeah. He he was he was going for that for to to try to move people into these other areas so that they could recolonize. And there was also a large movement through the Civil War of recolonizing Africa and sending African Americans back because it was it was thought that okay they've made our economy now and we don't we don't really have a need for them if they're going to be free so that was that was the philosophy there and I, I do believe Lincoln was way ahead of his time as a progressive and and as a part of the Republican Party he was this beacon for for hope for the african-american population and i know that frederick Douglass and him were very close especially towards the the middle of their relationship they throughout that entire process they were really really close yeah it's it's fine like it's it's kind of like a uh philosophical question of moral um objectivity like can you put today's moral compass back then and i don't know um but it is fun to do it and look mm -hmm. back and um especially the way we put all these people um in american history on this pedestal and then you look back and all these people like had slaves and stuff and mm -hmm. no wonder um black folk are wanting these statues pulled down in the states like i i can't i actually wanted to pick your brain a bit because you spent some time there um where, where were you staying and when COVID first hit in phoenix i'm even here now my mom has oh, a pool, so it's yeah it's a lot better for rehab oh, that's pretty sweet yeah um like you, you were mentioning to me that being being in that area and seeing other perspectives on things kind of um, pushed you more towards the center. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like how did how did do you feel like you're not free to express that? I think naturally I'm very liberal. Like mm -hmm. I, I think my my natural tendency is quite liberal in personality and political views. Um, what really started to push me more to the center was watching 
watching the media in politics and seeing how much each position of the media twists the story. So what I started to notice more and more about the Liberal Party was that the majority of media is liberal. The majority of like all, all media, I would say. If you go onto Instagram, I, the majority of it's liberal. If you go onto TikTok, the majority of it's liberal. And, and they become these echo chambers really fast because if you find any right-wing any right wing niches, then, then you gravitate towards it super hard. So I, I personally try to watch both sides of, of, of the, the aisle and like even my YouTube, I, I try to control the algorithm so that I'm consistently watching both left and right. I think that in America, especially this, there's a huge silent majority and what's, what's inevitably happened is that I, I believe it's due to the media and that left-wing politics are so prevalent in what we see every day. And even you even see it with cancel culture and how people, if you say anything that's not in line with a left-wing philosophy of progressiveness, you, you can lose your job, your entire livelihood can be stripped away. So more and more the right-wing people are starting to become silent, 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 but they still exist. Like there's no... And, and people keep getting pushed further and further away from each other. And it, it doesn't seem that there's any type of reconciliation between the two is that they keep getting further away. And there's not necessarily an idea from the left to bring people closer in. And there's not really an idea from the right to bring people closer in. And that, that's kind of a scary thing is that they, they keep pushing each other apart and pulling each other apart. There's no real push or pull to get back into, into line with each other where we can have some kind of middle ground decision, but it's really an othering and an enemying of one another, which I find really, really scary. I don't, I'm not sure how that's going to play out in the next five, four years, five years, but it's freaky to me. Do you watch um, any Lex Fredman? Friedman? No, I've, I've heard of him. I've seen a yeah. few, I've seen a few clips, but I haven't gotten into him. I, I haven't watched any for, uh, I watched one full episode and that was, um, his name's Carl something and he's um he's the head of computer science um at Georgia Tech mm-hmm. and uh they talk I think Lex is or AI I think he does something at MIT or something but um then they got into um the topic of race but Carl kind of because Carl is black and um he uh talked on his experiences and stuff and I'll send you the link to it it's a good talk but he mentioned in um, he mentioned this Venn di- there's no Venn diagram right now with the two sides that you're talking about, mm-hmm. and he said if you can somehow bring these two um, circles together, just to have that Venn diagram there, and get them speaking the same language, um, then maybe something can happen. But the the he um, mentioned like, one of the big problems is that they're speaking different languages. These two, these two data sets of people um, are using the same, well, I interpret it as they're kind of using the same words to mean different things or like, so I, I'm kind of like you, I really try to see the other side. And sometimes I get a little too deep in it. And then I have to get off Reddit for the day. <laughs> like yeah. like I, I get too far into the right and I, I see this like, just 
outright racist homophobic shit and i'm just like uh, and i'm like i can't go to sleep now mm-hmm. and uh but i i do like you see the like you have to try and stay objective as you as objective as you can it's just really hard right now mm-hmm. i'm staying with my um girlfriend's family and um we're at a dad's house right now and every morning he puts on um cnn and then on his alexa thing and then he'll play fox news right after mm-hmm. he's kind of the same way right yeah and somewhere in there you can kind of put something in between mm-hmm. but um for me you and, and reagan's dad who actually put an effort to try and stay um clear-headed it's actually a lot of effort to do and the average person does not give a damn about doing that right yeah like something has to again i whenever i think about all this stuff it just comes back to to policy and power and that includes the media the media has a lot of um has a lot of damn power when i've been thinking about this stuff it's all been when i think of policy or government policy right and uh again my magnifying glass has been on on racism in in north america but i'm really starting to look at how much the media um has a huge impact on uh on our views and stuff that i i so I've listened to a couple um, op- opposing views to mine, uh, like Jordan Peterson, um, Ben Shapiro, two big, very vocal people. There was one other guy, and I can't even remember what his name was, but he was talking about um, um, illegal uh, immigration from, from Mexico. Mm-hmm. And this woman spoke up at the event and she was talking about um, systemic racism, institutional racism, and his uh, his um, argument against it is he he's like I actually think it's racist to say that like his argument is free will mm-hmm. that it's racist to say these people don't have free will to make their own decisions. I just can't wrap my head around that, like. Yeah, we, uh, well, free will is kind of a philosophical, philosophical debate in itself, right? But I can't wrap my head around the idea that people are free to make their own choices in the system that we live in. Like, I, I think people are just people, and you put them into um, into these societies, and they will make decisions, but within the mean the opportunities that they have. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you. What do you think on that? So, so the way that I see, there's so much turnover in, if we're, if we're going to talk economic means, there's so much turnover in the top and bottom, like homeless people, the majority of the time don't stay homeless for their entire lives. And the people at the top, they don't stay at the top for their entire lives. Like there's so much turnover within our economy that it's really tough to say that like, homeless people in general are being held down and aren't giving, aren't being given opportunities. My, my philosophy, and I, I think this is a hill that I'd be prepared to die on is that it's hard to say no to someone that has more skills than you could hope for. 
Like if, if someone has all of the skills that you're looking for in an employee or in a captain, then it's really difficult to say no to them because of any, any morsel of their race or anything along those lines. More and more people from minorities are skyrocketing to the top of their particular dominance hierarchies because, because they work unbelievably hard. And I forget the first thing that we were talking about there, but I wanted to say something about that. Um, but, but I really believe that if people work hard, it's tough to say no to someone that works hard and puts their life on the line every day to, or puts their future on the line every day to learn and become better at something. Well, you um, have touched on a great thing that I've been thinking about as well. And um, I, I just somewhat agree. I, where I disagree on is that we kind of the myth of meritocracy um, and this, there's, let me use Obama as, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for a black man to become president, and I won't compare him to Trump because you can't compare anyone to that guy. But look at any president in the past. And to be honest, I don't have that great of um, knowledge of um, American presidents. But Obama had to be extraordinary. He had to be absolutely perfect mm-hmm. to be black and become the president. And the biggest two scandals, personal scandals that he had was one his birth certificate, yep. which I think came out of that. And two, he wore a tan suit once. Did you ever see that? No. <laughs> he wore a tan suit and a president's never worn a tan suit before. Really? And there's all these clips of, um, of right-wing media, just like scandal. Like yeah. Obama with, and then it's, it's hilarious. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, I think, there's a huge, I'm actually looking into this um, with sport and luck and luck and success. Um, and some, some good examples, which, which you might already know in sport, um, in hockey, um, like 60% of N- NHL players are born in the first three months of the year. Have you, have you heard of this? this oh, before? right. So they'd be playing... Oh. So then they'd be playing down with well, the lower the, division. Or also, the lower when they're, yeah, when they're kids, um, the kids, the, the hockey season, I don't know, whenever it starts, it lines up so that if you're born at the start of the year, by the time your season hits, you've grown that much more than the kid who's born at the end of the year. Yeah. And so those hockey players don't probably work as hard as these December kids, but they've just been given more opportunity because they happen to be um, more grown at that time of year. And the same um, data skew is uh, in European football, I think as well. Um, another like fun stat is seven, eight, seven out of the eight world records for sprinting. Um, they all had a tailwind behind them at the time. Um, obviously, these um, sprinters were talented enough to to win and to be fast, but 
that tailwind got them the world record. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me let me put that into a racial perspective and um, this meritocracy kind of thing. Um, work ethic is really important, but when you add in racial prejudice, it does make it that much that much harder. Um, and I know there's been studies and I'm sure, I'm sure there are studies that have gone against it, but putting a, a white name on an application, mm-hmm. is, it's much more likely for you to get um, that and stuff. And maybe from a, a, a personal perspective, man, I was a little shit in high school. Like I was actually such a bad student and such a bad, dare I say, I was a bad person sometimes. Like the way I treated my teachers, it was insane. I had problems at home and stuff, right? You act up. But what I saw from, uh, I'm half I'm half Tongan, half um, white. And um, the, even just the discipline in high school, from what I saw to my full island of friends, um, like I didn't get suspended or anything, but for the same, for the same, um, like whatever, whatever we did wrong, the same crime, mm-hmm. we got different, um, different punishments. And uh, let me let me go back to this extraordinary, um, the extraordinary black person. Black people have this. Um, there's this myth that for you to succeed, you have to be extraordinary. And uh, movies have done a great job of instilling this into those communities. And, and maybe let me preface that I'm not, both of us aren't black and maybe talking on, um, we can't talk from a personal perspective, right. but uh, The Blind Side is a great example. And I know it's been quoted in a lot of anti-racist books, but it's, it's like a classic example of a you can't get anywhere without the help of a white person mm-hmm. um, and b for you to get anywhere you have to be an athlete uh, a great athlete or um, you know you have to be you have to be extraordinary I was talking to my buddy and uh, who grew up uh, in the states and um, we, we talk about this stuff all the time and he's saying like you know, it's it's actually negative for the hood when we uh, when they see all these extraordinary black people because it kind of makes them think that's what I have to that's what I have to strive to be to get out of my situation. Um, yeah, so uh, I I. I I agree with you. Work, working hard is important, but there's a huge um, chunk of luck in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know what, what you think. Yeah, I think nobody really wants to hear that it's it's both. It's really inconvenient to hear that it's it's both of those things because you're 100 percent right. There are years of Jim Crow laws that have segregated communities and redlining and a lot of those things and there there i think there is an an aspect of 
being great at the thing that you do. Um, I, I think you have a good point with the, the blind side. I think that another movie that illustrates the point of hard workingness and self-made man would be The Pursuit of Happiness. That's one of my favorite movies because that's just such a, a solid representation of you can, you can do anything if you, if you work hard enough and you keep your mind to it and you strive for it. Yeah. Um, the book that I just finished reading um, was stamped from the beginning. Have you heard of Ibram X. Kendi? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love his stuff. And I've actually been on YouTube and watched videos of um, people just bashing him. And because um, I'm, again, trying to stay, trying to stay as objective as possible. But he does bring up these movies that I thought were great. Um, but just the, if whatever the intention was, I don't know. Um, but it, it just keeps, um, pushing this, this narrative that you, that like you, you need to work your ass off to, to be, to become extraordinary. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know if I, I love that movie too, but I, I don't know if that narrative is is useful for people in those situations. Because maybe in in these um, uh, first world countries, I don't know what we call them, but the, your the suicide rate is that much higher than than poorer countries, right? Like if you read that, that statistic, and um, one of the I think leading theories behind that is actually that um, you you live in a country where you don't um, most of your basic usually you, all your basic needs are met and you have a roof over your head and and yada yada and when you're still not happy um, it must be you you know what I mean and then they blame mm-hmm. themselves. Um, yeah, re- reading that book, it, he mentioned a few movies, uh, and and this is where it started to get a little. For me, I'm like, is this a conspiracy theory? Like, is the media all out to get black people? And mm-hmm. so, like, I don't know. For history, it's kind of proven that it 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 is, whether it's intended to or not. Um, another movie uh, was the original Tarzan where this white guy's thrown in the jungle and has to fight off, um, black African people and, and, um, and apes and whatnot or whatever. But when when you match the movies to the time period, it does kind of make sense. Um, like I know during the cold war and this is, I didn't read this or anything. I'm just remembering, um, no, I wasn't born during the cold war. When was the cold war? Cold War was 1970s. Okay. But in, in that era. I definitely like wasn't. 90s. Yeah, but movies from that period, right? Weren't the villains usually like Russians? Yeah. Um, like always. You, uh, yeah. What is it like? Die Hard, all of those. There was that, there was that stream of movies where... I, I, and I believe that that's a, a more... Like that, that's definitely deliberate othering of the people that our country or our media currently sees as the issue they're having to deal with. So like you said, uh, mid to 
it was like in the middle of the late 19th, 1900s was Cold War. And then after that, it was like Afghanistan terrorists, Taliban. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where we moved into was like Russian bad guy, um, the blonde dude from Rocky into like Afghani terrorists. Yeah. Well, Rocky is another one. Um, there is one where he knocks the shit out of a, like the black dude is the final boss, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And I think that was a sign of the times too. Uh, the um, uh, King Kong as well, like this white girl goes to a jungle and, and there's this um, big ape that she has to tame. And, and you know, at the time, even to the state racists will compare them to um, compare black folk to, to monkeys and, and apes and stuff. And um, I don't know, man, when I'm, I'm reading these, like about these movies and stuff and now we, let's go back to Rocky. Now it's like Creed is the sequel to, to Rocky. Have you mm-hmm. seen any of those? No. Well, Creed was um, the, the Russian dude, knocked out um um the apollo creed who was the black boxer and he killed him in the ring Mm -hmm. and then now um apollo creed's son uh something creed it's like the new rocky movies and again it's like a sign of the times like let's let's put a black face on the screen now and they're, they're the hero now and i don't know if i'm for or against it i'm just saying like um the media kind of shows this this pattern as well of like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy now. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, yeah, I I do think with the King Kong example, I think that goes deeper. I think that goes a lot deeper than than skin deep. Um, what is it? The five. So in erotica, in women erotica, not women erotica, but in in erotica books. Um, the top five male protagonist interests. I think, I'm not sure if I'll remember all of them. Vampires, werewolves, doctors, pirates, and one other thing. And, and so there's this idea of, it's Beauty and the Beast. It's that, it's that archetypal yeah, yeah. story of taming yeah. something and not necessarily it being due to race, but being able to tame tame a mate and have them go from this brutish, strong, angry male into a nice sensitive guy. And, and I mean, I've, I've seen this so many times with, with my friends where they'll start dating someone that's changeable is, is the, the idea is, mm-hmm. is the principle behind that is that it's someone that you can change into a better person because you see this, this other side of them. And I think, I think that's where a lot of that comes from. And, with, uh, and I mean, it, it, a lot of the time, these conversations make me think: like, why do we watch movies? Why, why do we? There, there has to be something behind it to be willing to sit down for two hours and put two hours into this thing. Why do we watch movies? Why do we watch TV shows? And it's playing out this story. Nobody wants to see someone go from like you're at the top of this, you're you're at the pinnacle, and you just maintain people want to see someone that they can relate to. So lots of people want to see someone like Harry Potter, where he's just this poor orphaned kid in an unruly family that hates him. 
and he becomes the the chosen one, this person, and that's some that's someone that we can relate to. He goes through this alchemical journey and becomes the best version of himself. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what we like. I, I wonder what would happen if we were to. I mean, obviously, there's tragedy. There there are tragedy films that we could watch that that don't have the the hero's journey framework. But I think a lot of the time we watch all of the Disney movies are based on that framework of the hero's journey of entering this new landscape where you're new to everything and you have no idea what's happening, but you're, you're chosen in some way. And then you go through this journey where you face adversity and meet new friends and retrieve this hidden knowledge that you're able to bring back to your, to your people that you can, you can create a better world from, from learning and from being in this journey. And I, and that's all of that's through Brothers Grimm as well. And any fairy tale going back, any story going back is this journey of going up and down a little bit and coming back up and finding a rebirth of yourself. And I think that's why people watch films and TV shows is to have a framework. They, because I, I think that's deep in our minds is that we want this thing. We've seen this thing happen. We know the hero we want to become the hero and having a visual representation of that while also entertaining allows us to dive into that visually as well as philosophically. Yeah. I, uh, well, uh, maybe let me like, uh, some of the, the shit I've been watching lately. Um, obviously the pendulum is swinging and, and, um, people are asking for representation and mm-hmm. um, and and so on in in the media, but it, from from my perspective, when I watch some of these shows, it's just blatantly obvious that they're just throwing in these extra people um, to diversify their their cast. Mm-hmm. So, like, a great example it was this. Show and Crave, it's based on a book. It's this flight, I think it's called The Flight Attendant, mm-hmm. right? And um, the, the main character is a white girl, she's a flight attendant. And then the premise is that she wakes up after being super drunk and she's killed the guy that she slept with, or he's dead anyway. Mm-hmm. But then her, her brother is gay with two adopted black children. And then her two, her three flight attendant friends, are like um, I think Venezuelan or uh, something, uh, a black girl and a gay black guy, and it's just like, and the, the side stories—they're not even side stories, but this one woman, um, she's an FBI agent and she's she's black, and the, her partner is a white guy. And she just throws in there somehow. And this, this is obviously their script is that, like, do you know what I had to do to get here? Yada, yada. I'm like, I just had to laugh because I'm like, this, whoever wrote this show just threw that in there to like, and the, uh, the only people that are seeing that and getting something from it are white people. They're probably like looking at them and oh, look, they're getting something, you know what I mean? It's like no, no person of color, no, um, no gay person is looking at that and like, we did it. You know what I mean? Like we have our stories being shown. 
So uh, I, I see that a lot and I just have to, even, even some of the stuff I see, um, like the, I, I see a lot of companies doing, um, well, let me even just say the black history, not black history, the black lives matter street that they did by the white house or something. Yeah. I see stuff like that. And, um, like that's nice, but it's not, it's not changing anything. You know what I mean? It's like, I think it's actually kind of a distraction of, of the root root problem, which I think is, is racist power and racist policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that we had on Instagram, the blackout Tuesday and all that stuff. It's just, it's just kind of useless distractions almost. Well, a lot of it's to build awareness because yeah. like if you, I mean, that's the, I, I agree that there's this argument between what are you looking to achieve and what are you really doing? And to, to bring people in a great way to do that is art. And we have so many visual medias now where, I mean, I wouldn't say that that's a, anything that belongs in the Louvre is like box letters, but, but it allows people to, see this thing and know, okay, I'm not the only one thinking that. Like, I think that's a, that's a huge benefit of social media and potentially a huge negative of social media is that you can, you can really find things, you can find almost anything that will help you to get further into your cause. And so art and social movements where, like I see, I see it consistently now. Every, every week there's some kind of new blank day where you're posting a thing about um, whatever, uh, dogs and best friends and people of color. And, and I mean, even, even I would say that a lot of it should get sprinkled in more in like in the, in the broader scheme of things, I think there should be more incorporation of different perspectives in education as well mm-hmm. in that. Like, I can't believe I had no idea who Frederick Douglass, Douglass was until I kind of sucked that out and, and read his book. I, and there are lots of other examples along, along those lines. My girlfriend is really big into indigenous culture and she wants to find a way to teach a curriculum using exclusively indigenous authors. And I think she comes to this issue a lot of the time is that there's this I think there's a lot of gatekeeping where mm-hmm. if, if a, if a white person wants to use an indigenous author, they need like it, it's, it becomes a little bit taboo even to talk about any indigenous issues. If you're not indigenous or to talk about black issues, if you're not black. And, and I think that there's, I don't know, it's weird. It's, it's super weird to me that we can't have a collective knowledge base and, and share that more fluidly. I think there are a lot of, walls that disable that and i, I want to know what you think about that yeah no you you've actually touched on a great point that I, um here's so objectively you are right but um if you can if you can wrap your head around this this one concept mm-hmm. and um 
to my definition of racism, I do think it's it's racist, but um, some people uh, believe there's no anti-white racism. I, I don't actually know um, where I stand on, on the definition. Um, and I, I would like to chat about that too, but I can understand how a black person can say, I hate white people. I can't understand how a white person can say, I hate black people. Because what have they ever done to you as a people? Now, this was said to me by a friend. And at first, I was like, shit, man, like that's, that goes against what I intuitively think. But mm-hmm. even as we talk as a people, that now you're getting into the roots of racism, which is even just um, like you look at indigenous indigenous cultures and stuff too, like historically just been oppressed and oppressed and oppressed. And if you want to classify people into their races, which is what was done by um, by white people to benefit them, uh, and now now it doesn't, and we want um, these to be less talked about. It's just like, like just just put yourself into um, one of these people's shoes and be like now now you want to it's like oh now you want to talk kind of thing Mm -hmm. and i i I understand actually how hard it is to to try and get that perspective through um but when you've when you've lived in a society that really benefits being white and people have protested, people have died to try and just live well, not even be better off, not even be better than, or just live well. There's just a huge lack of trust there. And um, I think there are a lot of white folk out there who have really good intentions, but Again, it's it's just a, a barrier that you it's just gonna be there when you're trying to converse with these communities. Like th- there's um in Tonga where my dad was born and um Christianity is now intertwined with our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's quite sad and I would never say this to my parents because they're so devoutly a part of the church but missionaries came white people came and said you're savages they erased our, um, our tattoo culture which is now being revived um, took away our, our rituals same things happened to to indigenous folk in, in Canada um, so just stuff has been taken away by white people to these communities. 
so there's just a huge lack of trust whenever you whenever a white person says like okay let's get to working together i always think of um uh anti-racism kind of like becoming jewish and i don't really know about becoming jewish but i know that you have to be denied again and again yeah. and finally you get through and that's kind of how i think of it mm -hmm. I, I think you're right i think there's a there's a huge lack of trust between groups and especially people that have been historically oppressed i i do believe there's a big like well, why what are you doing now like, why do you want to help now and i think there's I think there, I think there could be some danger in specifying an individual based on their group identity. Like I, I think that's, that's essentially what, to me, that that's, that's an idea within racism is that you're, you're making all of these generalizations about an individual based on the way that they look. And, and I think, I think that works both ways. I think that works in like it's it's I, I think that it's a it's a like it's a really tough thing to talk about because there's so much contention around the issue and and the way the way that i see it is that it, it does become very limiting to to categorize someone based on their group identities like to group all males together and all black people together and all white people together and all women together and all in indigenous populations together. I, I think that it in, in some way can set back a, a progress maybe. Like I, I tend to look at people as individuals themselves and I try not to make assumptions based on their, their group classifications, but obviously I could be uh, in some eyes seen as wrong for doing that. Um, and that's, that's a tough thing for me is working through that. Yeah. Well, um, I just, I used to think the same way, but let, let me, um, let's try and look at this from mm -hmm. an indigenous perspective and you have, um, you have the Indian act, right. Which is mm -hmm. one of the most racist patriarchal, um, pieces of legislation, um, in the in the world definitely in, in canada and um they tried to get rid of it right it mm. i mean it the the doc the the act itself has changed over the past whenever it was implemented i think in the, in the 1800s maybe even earlier um and they tried to get rid of it i think pierre trudeau tried to get rid of it with the white paper and even though that this act is still still a, really hindering indigenous people, they don't want to get rid of it because if you get rid of the act, if you get rid of the differenti differentiation of um, a status Indian, mm -hmm. which legally um, is, is the term, um, then they lose any bargaining power that they have. Mm -hmm. And this is just from a legal sense, because, um, right, I think the, the indigenous struggle in, in Canada and what Canada has done to indigenous people is 
it's so shameful um i think it's reading about it it's like one of the most it is it's the most embarrassing thing to Canada, and it's Canada's done such a good job of sweeping it under the carpet. Yeah. Sorry, I, I digress. Um, if if we, what I'm trying to say is, if we remove these identities, um, those groups, minority groups, mm-hmm. lose their bargaining power, right? Mm-hmm. And and whether or not it's People argue towards it's a race issue, it's a class issue. Um, it's it's just undeniable that minorities as a group struggle. Mm-hmm. And so um, can we get to a point where we don't need them? Uh, I would argue, do we want to? Um, and I don't know, maybe in a legal sense, you do want to because then economically in a, in a true meritocratic society, then everyone is equal um, and you can still hold on to your cultural identities, um, but maybe it just doesn't um, mean that that, that that identity doesn't entail struggle. Mm-hmm. I, I do think right now, getting rid of um, group identities in particular and the intersections of these groups um, is actually quite, I think it would be harmful. Yeah, I just, I just want to clarify. I don't think yeah. that group identity should be getting rid of at all. I think that it's, I think it's very, very important to have group identities and to, to be affiliated with particular groups, both religiously and through ethnicity. It's, I've, I've found that to be very pungent through, because I, I don't really have a, a deep tie to my family history. Um, I'm Irish and Scottish. I have an indigenous great, great grandfather on my dad's side. And I have all these areas that I just don't, I don't know. And it's something that my girlfriend has a little bit more of, but not, but, but not, not as much as she could. And so there is this connection to family and land and home and culture and place that I don't think should be overlooked in the slightest. Um, my, my main point is by, is, is judging people based on their, their group identities and affiliations. Yeah. So that's that, yeah, that's kind of what it, it's at for me. Sorry, bro. You just cut out a little. I, I I totally understand your point, though. I I think that I I hope that indigenous populations will get more autonomy in Canada as as this fight continues, because I think that they've proved themselves as stewards of the land, and like there 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 should absolutely be a a more prominent indigenous voice in decision making, because. I've talked to I've talked with my girlfriend about this a few times because the more that I've dove into indigenous literature and also South American literature of before Cortez, um, we we lost so much valuable information through through the the decimation of culture and colonialism that took place 
that it, it really, it, it makes me unbelievably sad. I think that's one of the things that if I were to have any decision in history, it would be to retain that knowledge and history and culture because so much of it is just gone and lost for forever, which is crushing. I, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the greatest atrocities is what happened to the culture and land and information that was lost with those, those tribes and those peoples. Yeah. Um, uh, on the decision-making part um, in, in New Zealand, we do have um, in parliament, a Maori party. And so Maori are the indigenous New Zealanders and they're given um, a certain amount of seats in, in parliament to again, like uphold that, that culture and have that representation. I think uh, Jordan Peterson was on an Australian talk show mm-hmm. and they were talking identity politics and representation and um i'd like to hear what you think about this too but he doesn't believe in representation um he he made the analogy to bricklayers he's like 90 something percent of bricklayers are men do they need representation but or do women need to be equally represented and i don't know i think that's a pretty weak analogy um and people in in positions of power like affect the entire population and he might be right that um, just putting a woman in power doesn't mean that women will succeed right but mm-hmm. i think the people in power have to have um, have to understand the needs of particular groups and it's just more likely that a woman would understand what women need, but it just being a woman doesn't mean you do. And same for um, black representation. People really like to um, highlight uh, black people that say what they agree with and really put them on this pedestal. There's a guy like Thomas Sowell. Uh, he's an economist or something, but he's, um, a big voice on he thinks the reason for racial disparity is is um individuals and and black culture being inferior basically and and that's um completely against what i um i don't even want to say believe just what i've studied because i don't want to say i believe in something because it kind of entails that i and putting faith into it. Yeah, just to, to clarify on the soul's point, his his main thesis for the book that he made that argument in is that um, in eastern uh, in eastern Britain, there were already rednecks that ended up coming and predominantly landing themselves in the southern United States, which is where that culture stemmed from. And so he's saying that that British culture is outdated. But I, I, I understand your point is that you can't say that a, a way that someone uses their language or I actually read, just read this book called The Language Instinct by Steve Pinkner. And he talks about how actually correct a lot of the language that 
that people have over the decades considered to be uh, like hood talk. Um, yeah. Like thug lingo. And he talks about how grammatically correct it is. He's like, language isn't mm-hmm. dying. Like it evolves with people and it evolves through, through groups. And so to have a language that you're able to use with your, with your group is really important and that portrays your cultural identity. And what, what Souls is saying is that that's all coming from a different place. It, it didn't, it wasn't born here. It was born somewhere else and then curtailed here and created into a more live picture. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read any, I just seen um, clips of him talking on YouTube and mm-hmm. um, now my, it's funny. Like, uh, I, uh, I, I consider myself an anti-racist and, and try, try my best. Like that's, kind of a title I have bought into. Um, and I know that there's been backlash over that term, um, whatever, but my YouTube algorithm is like completely on the other side. And mm-hmm. it, it's, um, it's all these, all these people totally arguing against yeah. what, what I'm studying, like what I'm reading and, and stuff. Right. Which, which I think is good. I think you should, you should really balance the the information that comes into you or else people just become ideologues where it's like you constantly have this confirming bias where everything that you watch confirms what you were thinking and there's nothing that sways you either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember um, last time when we talked, um, Uh, we were talking about, and which I didn't, I listened to on audiobook, but um, I actually want to read it again, that White Fragility book, mm-hmm. because I've read a lot of backlash on it. And um, yeah, I, like remind me your, your issues with the book and I, and I'd love to chat on that. But. Oh, I read that so long ago. Um, yeah, I, 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 what I remember from it is just, it is kind of a utilitarian view and that like in order for things to stable, like, to stabilize, like other people have to suffer mm-hmm. or like white people need to, it didn't, I don't know if it really gave any um, ways of white people actually opening conversations either. I, I think that it essentially closed a lot of conversations, mm. the way that she frames a lot of her arguments and the way that she, she portrays herself. So she talks a lot about going and teaching anti-racism to corporations mm. and trying to eliminate bias and like implicit bias, which is, I think the data is clear enough that you can't eliminate implicit bias. You can find ways to, to, I don't know, once something's implicit, at about 23, your brain hardens to the point where like, you're not as prone to propaganda or all these other things, but in that way, implicit bias also solidifies. And that's essentially what she's trying to do. But anytime someone argues a point, her, her main counter-argument is just like, you're, you're fragile white, and that's it. Yeah. Like there's no there's no open dialogue between the people that she's attempting to teach and and so I, I think that what ends up happening is that it fosters more of a more of a discrepancy in perspective because these people that she talks to they're saying like 
well, I'm Italian and Italians were treated very poorly for large parts of our history. And well, I'm Irish and we were more or less like wage slaves. Mm-hmm. And the entire time she's just saying, well, no, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. You're, you're white. It doesn't matter what your family history has been. What matters is that you're white. And so I think for, for lots of people, that's, I think that actually fuels the fire of othering mm-hmm. because lots of these people say, well, if, if we're building, if we're building the argument of being, like if we build this argument that this, this victim argument, not, I wouldn't, victim's almost too strong of a word, but if we build this argument that says my ancestors have experienced this thing, so I, I in turn have, have some kind of right to, to, to make this argument and someone else comes and says, well, my ancestors also experienced this thing and saying, well, no, because, because of this. Yeah. I, um, I've seen, uh, uh, this dude, um, something Weinstein, he's always on Joe Rogan, but he, (laughs) he wrote a big letter about kind of denouncing black lives matter and saying, um, comparing to, to being Jewish. Um, I don't, I don't just, I don't really, man, uh, Jewish people have been through a, a shit ton of stuff. Eh? Like they've been through the ringer uh, since the beginning. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, but it is a weird, um, comparison to make right now. And maybe it actually adds to your argument of these histories, like, like what is happening right now to, um, to black, it's, it's the same, they all should be fighting for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think in America, um, if you look at movements, uh, minority movements, um, I, I struggle with the word minority just because it, it does kind of make it sound like lesser than, I don't know, but I don't have any better word. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, they all have kind of been inspired or they all have been inspired by uh, black rights movements. Mm-hmm. The women women's movement was inspired by um, the emancipation movement or abolitionist movement. Um, they kind of all stem from it, and I, obviously, um, women still struggle. Um, the LGBT community still struggles, but um, I do I do think. Uh, having white people in that group has pre- has progressed those movements quicker. Mm-hmm. I don't have empirical evidence for that. Um, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but even um, yeah, no. Actually, I don't want to talk too much on stuff I'm not even not even educated on. So well, I'll I probably mean, even, even the Emancipation Act, like. The, 
the huge portion of the people that voted for Lincoln and the people that in, in the north of the United States that fought for the emancipation of the African population were like those were white people. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not that black and white people have been in each other's throats for the entire history of the earth or for the entire history of the United States. Like there have been there there it's more or less ideologies that people fall into. And like we we've worked together for mm-hmm. this entire time. And it's not as if we were two completely separate groups. And like like you yeah. said, a lot of those those groups that have that have um, acquired autonomy, more autonomy in their lives through the suffrage movement and the emancipation. Um, like a lot of those were interconnected groups that were going together with each other. They mm-hmm. weren't, it wasn't like one group of people fighting for this thing. It was a conglomerate of people, a series of individuals that made up this, this, this change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, but no, but again, it's always it's always needed uh, white people to to push it. Um, like uh, black people have tried to empower themselves or build their own communities, and they've always been struck down, whether it's from the government or the the KKK. Um, um, same as the indigenous struggle in Canada, which it actually amazes me. The more I read into this stuff, it's like um, that Canada is again is just done such a good job of covering it up yeah. and kind well, of. There's still there's still bands that don't have clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. Oh, a Flint, Michigan just got clean water, I think, in the States. Really? Mm-hmm. It's America. It's America. And they don't have, it, it was up to celebrities to. Yeah. Well, that's just kind of encapsulates the States, right? Uh, like to get drinking water, you needed celebrities and GoFundMes. But yeah. Um, the, the, so I had a conversation. Um, with uh, with my girlfriend's family the other night, and it's really got my my head um, turning and stuff. And it's funny, like you're in your bubbles. And uh, last summer, I was in. We we started the UBIAA, and we had all these. Um, they were basically support groups for Black and Indigenous um, or any athlete of color, but mainly um, black and indigenous athletes that showed up and you know finally they had this medium to share their experiences um, on what's happened to them and um and just be heard and be validated mm-hmm. and uh obviously the blm movement blew up over social media and that's that was my that was my world but i've um in in the in these rooms with white families a lot lately um moving back to canada and moving out to toronto and uh last year i was like wow like things are changing i was, I was really um optimistic enthusiastic and um, now i'm a little cynical i understand 
changes takes a very long time to to create and i'm kind of over this interpersonal this interpersonal stuff on the topic of of race and what i mean by that is you cut out Sorry, dude. The no, 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 that's fine. His shot. Um, what was I even saying? You were talking about interpersonalness in race. Yeah, so uh, there, there is this like, let's talk like slacktivism on Instagram is uh, people posting um, things on their stories and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of classify it as interpersonal or like mm -hmm. conversations um, uh, I might have with someone. Uh, I, I just think, especially being a person of color, talking to a white person, uh, socially, the white person has more social power in that they can ask me 10 questions that they have no idea about. Mm -hmm. and the um like that that i even have to explain that all is so draining um mm -hmm. and i can't even imagine being an indigenous person or or a black person having those same questions shot at them it's like um the the other night um there was a conversation and it was like about how the Washington Redskins um, got rid of their name. And uh, the question was asked, is Cleveland Indians okay? Like that's not offensive, right? And like immediately just shot so many things in my head that, that it's just the fact that that question is being asked just it's like that Venn diagram, like we're on total different planets mm -hmm. because, and um, two of the people in the conversation were arguing over um, 
like one of them said it well indians only became offensive uh recently and and the other girl saying like indian was um they used it because they thought they were landing in india yada yada and i i was kind of asked and i think just the fact that white people are arguing over it is just a whole other book we're not even on the same page and it's like one of the one of the um girls was like well my my textbooks had in she she's in her um in her 40s or 50s and exactly like your your textbooks say it said it so then it must be right right that is um what it's like to be white is that your history or white history has been written by white people mm-hmm. so you trust your textbooks yeah. mostly right um indigenous history has never had the opportunity to be told to be told from that perspective and so mm-hmm. how can we have that conversation right now it, it it just of all the things we talked about the other night and um i've kind of opened these discussions because uh i want to hear that perspective and i i've told people in our support groups don't go telling uh when when there's a lot of organizations that are like i want our black employees to share our, their experiences with us All right we saw a lot of that or indigenous or insert person of color and what we've kind of been telling them is don't stop doing that you're not getting anything out of it right you're you're pouring your heart out to people who don't get it and um what are you getting out of it so we had people being asked to speak at corporate events and stuff like that without being paid when you get someone to speak at something like that for a company they're always paid mm-hmm. but for some reason when it's sharing your experiences as a person of color we want you to do it and uh we're not going to pay you and this is all for you like this is your this is your problem you know what i mean so where i'm kind of at is if i'm not going to get anything out of the conversation i don't really i don't really want to talk about it i mm-hmm. i'm more much more interested in um changes in structure changes in in power and policy mm-hmm. and a lot of people that have been doing this work like i'm i'm very barely scratching the surface of this stuff but people who have actually uh doing their their masters and um and doing theses on this and stuff i can see that they've gotten to that place uh kind of the same way that i have uh, you become a little it's it's just it's it is very tiring this kind of this stuff and thinking about it and and um it does get you do get pretty mad and 
uh, I think right now have that magnifying glass on, on North America. And if I take that off and look at the globe, we have child labor, we still have slavery, we have all this other stuff. And my head is not ready for that, man. (laughs) And I think once I, once I do open that scope, um, it'll be very humbling. Um, but I admittedly am not ready for that and am being quite ignorant to it because I cannot take that on. Mm -hmm. How do you think, Like I, I've found that my best way of understanding is through reading a lot of accounts and understanding the things that have actually happened in the past and, and discussing with people that have experienced these things in the present. And so that's the way that I've, I've experienced my perspective change on a lot of these things. And I've come to believe that we experience macro change through the micro and in like individual change aids in the things you were talking about policy and power. So, so I, I, I absolutely understand that it's tiring to discuss these things and to put yourself out there. And I also understand the the philosophy of not wanting to do something unless you're getting something from it. Like, I, I totally think that that's right on. Like, I don't think that people should be providing a service without being compensated. Um, sorry, my dogs are so good. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's, that's where I am a little bit disconnected from that is that how, how does macro change happen if we don't make micro change? Yeah. Good question. And I don't know, let's explore it. I, where I'm at with that is I would much rather put my energy into empowering communities of color, mm-hmm. um, especially indigenous communities in Canada. Um, the... How does the macro change happen without micro? It, it doesn't. And we've seen protests and stuff. And I think that's sparked from, from um, individual conversations and, and mm-hmm. has grown out. But I just don't think... Um, and you're hitting on what I've what has been spinning through my head the last month two months that how do you get those ideas put into power mm-hmm. right how do you how do you cha- change racist policies um yeah i don't i don't know um we saw people right we saw grassroots movements in the states push Native American um, communities to get out and vote. We saw um, grassroots um, um, black initiatives to get black communities out to vote. And so that's, I think, where maybe that micro 
um, change comes in that that bottom up, right? Because you're that's where the that's where the power is with um, individuals where where it should be is is voting, and and where their money is. Like you can hit people in their wallets. Um. Yeah. I don't know. I think if we solve that, we solve a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, right. And it, it is fun to kind of speculate. And um, I, I agree with you that as much power as the media has, I think it really backfired on them. Um, pushing liberal views. I, I was, I think I was talking to my girlfriend about this yesterday. I was like, um, as much as this movement has really brought um, oppressed voices to the table, I think it has strengthened those opposing views. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that it's not an equal rise, but what we saw at the Capitol last month is probably a great example of that. None of those views are popular media, but they had enough. Um, they felt that they were oppressed and thought that they had the right to do that. It, the more I watch that and the more I think about the, um, the insurrection, I'm actually just blown away that everything that went into it, you know, like the lack of police compared to BLM protests. Yeah. Um, even just, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I have zero sympathy for anyone that was there. Mm -hmm. um, I can, I can empathize. I can understand. I have, I have no sympathy though. Um, but for them to be that passionate about something, right? They must really believe in it. Mm -hmm. And trying to trying to change an individual on that side's perspective through conversations and stuff. I think it's inefficient. Um, I don't think again people. Using the same words but speaking different languages. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, I think that's a like that's that's exactly what I was referring to earlier. Where this silent majority—not even majority, but like like fifty percent of the the nation—we're like yeah. we're pretty cut down the middle between Republicans and Democrats, at least in the yeah. states, and then in Canada too. I mean the the conservative party won the majority and they, they still didn't get in. But with that is like, there's this consistent othering. And as you said, in the Capitol, that was discussed earlier. That was pre-planned. All of that was premeditated. Like it was an idea. And this group of people think that they're, they feel oppressed enough to, to do something like that. And, and, and right now what I see is that, just groups yelling at each other. There's no dialogue back and forth of how we can kind of recuperate a relationship and, and create bridges between the ideas. 
it's more of a you're wrong for this reason and you're wrong for this reason and there's no there's no attempt to find middle ground which is something that i'm like my my goal is to do podcasts with as many people as i can from differing perspectives because i it's something that i really want to understand is how to bridge that gap between people and undivide uh not not just a country but but people in themselves mm-hmm. i um I, uh, I'm looking forward to maybe one day looking back at this talk and seeing how much my views have changed and how much I've contradicted myself, maybe. Um, but what you're doing is, is quite special in that you want to get different views. Um, I used to watch a decent amount of Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. I kind of see some problems in his podcast because he thinks of himself as quite a an objective person um and he obviously has a lot of um conservative voices and i guess um but he 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 claims that he has a lot of different views but i'm seeing it move more and more one-sided into um like right leaning or even maybe just this um this covid pandemic wherever you're at with it i haven't seen anyone on his show say masks are good like i i've seen clips on youtube they just come up and it's like how co- how um lockdowns and stuff um are detrimental to society and whatever I, I i'm an average i'm a regular ass person i don't know what is going on with this pen i i don't know i i think it's really funny to me when average ass people try to mansplain this pandemic mm-hmm. like um it's there are so many variables and i i can totally understand mistrust in the government but i just can't understand anyone having an expert opinion on this un- unprecedented time for uh, anyone living right now. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the thing that I find most interesting about it is that you can easily argue for either side. Um, with the lockdowns, I think that strict lockdowns have been proven successful. Like New Zealand, Australia, to like just perfect examples of something where a closed system with strict lockdowns and finding outbreaks and locking down around them, like they're living a normal life right now. Mm-hmm. And also cultures that are mask wearing naturally before the pandemic, such as Japan and Korea, a lot of that's more cultural in that like if you're sick, you just wear a mask. So people have just worn masks and the lock and the, the pandemic hasn't had as much of an effect. And I think that the the more free flowing and larger nations, like I think the EU is going to have difficulty with this for a long time because it's so hard to close borders because that's the the idea behind the EU is is relatively free travel. So to lock people down is is tough. And same with America, where you can travel the whole country, and it's a huge country. And same with Canada. So I, I really think that depending on which way you look at it, you can argue for either way. 
yes, it's destroying an economy to lock down. Also, it'll save an economy if you lock down sooner and deal with the problem and completely reopen and not have to go through continuous lockdowns. I don't know. My, my grandma and I talked about this a while ago and she was complaining about how totalitarian everything is. I'm like, well, other countries have done this and succeeded. So it doesn't, like, it doesn't necessarily mean that we can't do it and succeed. It's, it's that the people aren't willing enough to do it and succeed. And it's, it's at an individual level as well. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine trying to do what New Zealand did in the States? Yeah, because like it's a, it's landlocked on either side. So there's people that can go through borders, and mm-hmm. like New Zealand, I I think that island nations have it the easiest for this. Like Korea, Japan, mm-hmm. New Zealand, uh, Australia, all of those have like, control over their their bubble of people coming in, and they can put them into hotels so that they can quarantine for fourteen days. Whereas we don't really have that that privilege in Canada, America, Mexico. Like that, those yeah. three. Or, or, or the infrastructure, governmentally, you know, like New Zealand is, um, has a lot of government funding and stuff. So um, when, when we go later this year, the government's paying for my weeks, which mm-hmm. I understand is probably a couple grand or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas America, you'd, again, probably need celebrities to, to fund some hotels and, and share their money out. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know, man, I'm, I, um, I think a, a lot of people are, uh, are really burnt out from this. And um, there are people who I've talked to who give me their top stories. And I just, I, this is paradoxically, I can't, I hate complaining, but when I say that I'm complaining about complaining, but, um, what people, what people have gone through in this pandemic, there's always someone worse off than you, man. And, um, yeah, I find, I, I am extremely grateful that my, my girlfriend's family took me in and have been watching my dog Greece and, we have a f- like a family here we have and um and we have the dogs we can take the dogs for a walk but even someone who is still um privileged in the sense that they have a roof over their head and a job and stuff even those people are just stuck inside a room all day and and um going stir crazy and then uh i know back home in new zealand from my neighborhood i heard of kids dropping out of high school so they could uh, they could get a job and provide for their family. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like really hard for me sometimes at the dinner table to hear some complaints and whatever. Yeah. Everyone's, everyone's, everyone needs to complain and, and stuff, but there's only so much you can listen to. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Everyone, like everyone's been hit to different extents. So it's mm-hmm. easier for everyone to put forth their voice and say, I've been, I've been impacted in this way where just like you said, any, anyone that you look at in the entire world, there's someone that has it worse, except for the mm-hmm. person that has it worse. That yeah. probably wouldn't be fun to be that guy. All right. Do you want to cut there? Yeah, man.
Okay, I'll, I'll stay on for a few minutes just to say bye, but okay, I'm cutting it now. Sweet. Thanks again for, thanks for coming on, man. Every time we talk, I have like my entire mind changes, my perspectives change, and it, it's just a ton of fun to have you on. So, okay, I'm cutting it now. Bye. Sweet.